A reading from Ezra chapter 3. Uh, in the Red Church Bibles, it's page 475. 475. Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought as free will offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorised by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, Jeshua, son of Josadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites and all who had returned from captivity to Jerusalem, began the work appointing Levites 20 years of age and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Jeshua and his sons and brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodavir, and the sons of Henadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of, the, of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord, He is good, his love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sounds of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, and because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. Um, well, welcome. It's great to uh, see you all. Um, there's a lot of things that have come together in our service already. I'm really pleased that Joy has spoken about the sufficiency of uh, the scripture. Uh, you might wonder why we're kind of dwelling on this obscure book called Ezra in the Old Testament. It's because it's God's word. And God has given it to us for us to learn and uh, be encouraged and challenged. And uh, I'm really looking forward to um, what we're going to think about uh, today. So uh, you can settle down and um, hopefully... Andrew said to me before, I've been reading Ezra chapter 3, I have no idea what you're going to get out of this. But in in about, I don't know, half an hour or so, you'll know. So uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, to this with you. We're in the book of Ezra, we're thinking about the journey home. This is the Old Testament account of God's people returning home to Jerusalem after their devastation of being in exile for 70 years in, uh, in Babylon. In a way, this is like a second version of Exodus. You'll know the story of how the people of God came out of Egypt, led by Moses, and came to the Promised Land. Now... Many years later, they're being brought out of exile in another different foreign country and returning home 
to the promised land. This is our third session. In the first, we were thinking about the idea of God rebuilding on the ruins. And uh, this is great news that God is able and willing to build something great on the ruins of human failure. Last week, I thought we had a great time um, with, with Rich. As, uh, Rich led us to think about how God moved his people out of their comfort zone. Um, although this is a journey home that is initiated by God, it also meant the people had to get up and go somewhere. And that cost them. They had to respond to that call. And chapter 2, which John read to us last week, very bravely, lists all of the people who responded to that call and who got up and went out of their comfort zone back to Jerusalem. Well, this afternoon's our third session, and I want to ask the question, why? What is the point of all this? Why does it even matter that these people go home to Jerusalem? Well, the answer that we find in the book of Ezra here, in chapter 3, for these people, is that they go home so that they can worship the Lord, their God. In verse um, 2 here, it says, Jeshua, son of Josedak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel. The reason that they're going on this journey home is partly so that they can worship God. Isn't it strange that the first thing they do is build an altar? So we might say, and this is our title for this morning, that God is restoring his people to worship. Restored to worship. I was very interested that Jai referred to the Westminster Confession of Faith, I think it was. I'm going to refer to an old document as well that was... Was it this, did you say the Westminster Confession of Faith, John? Yeah. The Westminster, Westminster, Westminster Catechism. Uh, in, the, in the past, in them their olden days, um, people in churches would often learn basic theology by means of questions and answers. And, uh, and, that, and that kind of question and answer uh, is, is known as a catechism. People in uh, years gone by in this country would be catechised as part of their membership as a lo- of a local church. Um, and the Westminster Catechism, is probably the most famous, was produced in the 1640s by a team of English and Scottish theologians. And the idea would be for the minister to come to your house and he would, he would ask questions and you, you would learn the answers. And, and in that way... Uh, the, the minister or, or the, the leaders would teach basic biblical theology to people in a way that they could remember. Question one of the Westminster Catechism says this. So you imagine your minister coming to your house and saying, uh, here's question one. This is it. What is the chief and highest end of man? And you'll be sitting there in your front room and you've got to give the answer. And hopefully you'll have read the catechism before the minister came, so you wouldn't be guessing. And the answer that these theologians put was, 
man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to fully enjoy him forever. What is the, what is the point of life? What, what, what are we even here for? Why did God even make people? The chief and the highest end of man and woman is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In other words, we're made to worship. Now, I like that formulation, uh, the answer, because it includes the idea of satisfying joy. The most noble and highest and purest happiness a human being can know is to be captivated and enthralled and in awe of God. This is what we're made for. I've said to you before that the simple idea behind the word worship is the word wow. I think that's a good way to put it. Worship is seeing and appreciating something of the greatness, the infinite greatness of God and your whole personality being caught up in an ecstasy of, wow, isn't God amazing? That's worship. Uh, That would be a good place to start, wouldn't it? What's worship? What is worship? Is it singing song? No, worship is a heart that is captivated by God. Wow, God, you are great. The reason I like that formulation is that many people have the wrong idea that if you worship God, you must be dead to any sort of enjoyment because we've fallen for the idea that enjoying things is selfish. And God obviously doesn't want us to be selfish, so if we enjoy something, that can't be worship. But these, um, these Scottish and English theologians in the 1640s, they, they knew a little bit about theology, and they didn't fall for that error. The essence of worship is to enjoy God and to be satisfied in God and by God, to see and appreciate his glorious, infinite beauty, majesty, The reason these people are going home is so that they can worship God. God is restoring them to worship. But this isn't because God is vain. It is because God has in mind for them the heights of satisfying joy. He is calling them. This is a love story really. God is calling them home. This is a great and passionate lover calling his beloved one to come away with him. This is God calling them to worship. I think it has echoes of the first Exodus. When Moses led the people out of Israel, maybe we could do a little quiz here. Moses went to the mighty king Pharaoh, the mighty uh, king there in Egypt. He was a little bit nervous. He told God he didn't really want to go, but God sent him, nevertheless. And he stands before this great king. And he said, I've got a message for you from God. Have you? God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's sitting there on his nice shiny throne thinking, why? And who are you anyway? And what does Moses say? 
to Pharaoh. Well, Pharaoh, the thing is, it's too hot in Egypt. We don't really like it here. And we'd like to go somewhere a little bit cooler. Or maybe he said, Pharaoh, I'm sorry to have to say this, but we don't like you. (laughs) And we want to get as far away from you as we possibly can. Actually, we hate being slaves. We're sick of making bricks all day for you, and we'd rather do something else for a change. Or maybe Moses said, we just want to be free to do our own thing. Moses didn't say any of those things. The reason was, God said, let my people go. Why? So that they may worship me. David, King David, in the Old Testament, in Psalm 51, after sinning so bad, He confesses his sins. He cries out to God, cleanse me, renew me, restore me. Why? So that my mouth may declare your praise. There was a man in the New Testament who was sitting by a gate in Jerusalem called Beautiful. It was a bit ironic because he wasn't so beautiful. He was a lame man and a beggar. And as Peter and John were passing by, He asked them for some cash. Peter turns to him and turns his pocket out and he says, I haven't got any money. But what I do have, I'll give to you. And he looked him right in the eye and said, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. And this lame man, by the gate beautiful, stood up and walked. Some of you know the old Sunday school song, we're playing what happens next on question of sport Peter and John went to pray they met a lame man on the way he asked for arms and held out his palms and this is what Peter did say silver and gold have I not but such as I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth rise up and walk what's the next line he went walking and leaping and praising God why? It's for worship. Can you imagine the guy? <laughs> whoops. I don't want to do that. <laughs> shouldn't knock it over, sir. So when we come to Ezra and we ask, why? Why are these people going home? The answer is, they're going home to worship. They're not going home primarily to be set free from their captors, although it does involve that. This is not primarily about they're getting their city back, although it is about that. It's not just about going home to familiar territory. This is all initiated by God so that they will be able to worship him. They couldn't do it in exile. Their temple was smashed and they were in a foreign country. I read in one place that they were surrounded by pagan gods, 50 temples in Babylon and over 150 open-air shrines to the gods of the nations who had smashed them to smithereens. They were ashamed and broken. It's true that they've lost a great deal and they're very weak, but God has not forgotten his poor people. And all of this divine initiative that we've seen, raising up Cyrus to make a decree to send them home, And then all that we saw in chapter 2 last week of God bringing them safely to Jerusalem, it is all designed to enable them to joyfully worship God. 
And that's why it says in verse 2, they began to build the altar. Now, I don't, wa- I don't want you to think that I mean altar so much in the physical sense. This altar for them is a symbol of their heartfelt, joyful worship of God. But this is not where the people have been. We say, yeah, don't we, sometimes in life, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Is that true? These people now know what they've been missing for the last however many years. I think there's a sense here in this passage that the brokenness they've experienced has taught them what's really important. Isn't it significant that when they come home, the first thing they do is get their priorities right and they begin to get worship established. These people have been in exile. They're broken and weak. It's their own fault. They've forsaken God. They've lost all sense of God's presence in their life. And now they come home and they don't want to be like that again. They don't want to be so low and broken. It used to be good and they've lost it all. And I I don't know, I can see a sense of agency here for these people. These leaders, they stir up the hearts of the people. Come on, let's not drift. Let's build the altar and get God at the centre of our community. Let us worship him. I think their behaviour here now, their home, is one of desperate desire. We don't want to make the same mistakes again. We never again want to lose the sense of God being with us. Some of you might recognise this quote. It's from a song. I can't get it out of my head now because it came into my head the other day when I was preparing. Richard and Jai know this. Um, a, A pop group called Counting Crows did a song in 2003 called The Big Yellow Taxi. Shall I sing it for you? I better not. This is how it goes. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. They paved paradise and they put up a parking lot. You recognise those words? You've heard it on the radio or whatever. They paved paradise and they put up a parking lot. You don't know what you've got till it's gone. There's a singer called Joni Mitchell who originally wrote that song. She was apparently on holiday in Hawaii and she woke up and looked out the window and saw this beautiful ocean paradise scene and as her eyes came closer she looked at the bottom of the hotel there and there was a car park stretching for yards and yards they traded paradise for a car park she went back inside and wrote that song you don't know what you've got till it's gone these people God's people they had known God They had known the joy of worshipping God and they'd thrown it all away for trivia. And they not only lost a sense of God's glory but they lost something of their own glory. Can I just say that again? I don't want you to miss that. They not only lost a sense of God's glory but they lost their own glory. There is a sense that we are defined as human beings by what we love. 
And part of our glorious human beings is really bound up in what we find glorious. When someone's vision is so low and they're satisfied with lesser things than they should be, there's a kind of shame involved in that. To be rich but to choose addiction that makes you poor. It shrivels you up, it reduces you, it diminishes you, it makes you less human. You've set your eyes on things that are far too low. Not only did these people lose the sense of God's glory, but they were brought low as well. You know the writer C.S. Lewis, very famous writer. He, um, he was a Christian, as many of you probably know, and he preached a sermon entitled The Weight of Glory. What a great title for a sermon, The Weight of Glory. And he starts it with this uh, paragraph. If you ask 20 good men today what they thought the highest of virtues, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. But if you had asked almost any of the great Christians of old, they would have replied, love. Can you see what has happened? A negative term has been substituted for a positive term. The negative idea of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion not primarily of securing good things for others but of going without them ourselves as if our abstinence and not their happiness was the most important point. I do not think this is the Christian virtue of love. There lurks in the modern mind the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Isn't that a great quote? What Lewis is saying is that to settle for things that are less than God himself. He compares it to a child making mud pies when he could go to the beach. And that's what God's people have been doing. You don't know what you've got till it's gone. They had known glory and thrown it away. The real ruin was not the rubble in Jerusalem. It was the ruin going on in their own hearts. Today reminds you of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve in one sense did actually pave paradise and replace it with a car park. They lived in paradise and lost it. They didn't know what they had till it was gone. I often wonder what it must have been like for Adam and Eve as they find themselves on the outside. Outside paradise, outside God's goodness and warmth and just feeling bereft and nothing would ever make up for what they'd lost 
However much they try to fill their lives with stuff to find security, purpose, meaning, satisfaction, they would never ever know it again. If you go back to the wow idea, what is going to make you go wow when you've seen something of the glory of God and lost it? Doesn't that ring true to human experience? We go through our whole life going, wow, that's great. Because we kind of know instinctively that there's got to be more than this. Isn't it really tragic to know what you had and lost and live with the nagging sense of never being able to get it back? To use the song, some people, they they live in the car park and don't even know that they were made to live in paradise. We'll get to Ezra in a minute, but I'm just laying a foundation here. Let, let me just talk about Adam and Eve just for a little while longer with you. One of the problems for us as human beings and for them is the issue of making value judgments on what will truly make us happy, isn't it? For God's people, they thought they'd be more happy if they left God behind and went their own way. For Adam and Eve, the same was true. The temptation that came to them was to forsake God, their creator and lover, to seek their fulfilment somewhere else. It's almost like a kind of adultery. God is not enough for us. We'll leave him behind and we'll find fulfilment someplace else. And then they find it's too late. They lost the good that they did have by trading it for a lie. I was learning something very significant recently about the temptation that they faced in the Garden of Eden. I'd never reflected on this before. And uh, I was listening to a Welsh uh, preacher when I was down in South Wales on the course I was doing. And he really made me think a lot about this. We haven't got time here to talk about the origin of evil, but the temptation came to Adam and Eve from an evil source. Evil intruded on God's perfect world, and the character described in the Bible as Satan or the devil is the one who tempts them. But what happens there in the garden is that Satan comes to them and he misrepresents God as selfish, self-serving, deceptive and cruel. He does not have your best interests at heart, suggested the sly devil. And they fell for it. But the interesting thing is that the one who has not got their best interests at heart is Satan. He is the liar. He's the deceiver. He's the cruel one. He is the one who's pulling the wool over their eyes, leading them by the hand out of paradise to destruction. So here's the thing, Satan effectively tempts them away from God by portraying God as him. He paints a picture that God is really deceptive, uncaring, untrustworthy, unreliable, while he pretends to have their best interests at heart. Do you get that? They fall for it. And they come to the conclusion that God is not good and loving, but cruel and narrow. And they begin to think that they'd be better off on their own. 
And yet the consequence of that decision is they lose the good they had. The crime, if you, if you like, of God's people here in the town of Ezra is, is exactly the same. They've come to the conclusion previously that God is not enough for them. He doesn't really love them. And they decide to pursue their happiness someplace else. And the result is they lose everything. You don't know what you've got till it's gone. Do you know what the most, the most amazing part of this story is? Is that this God, who always was good, is still good. Do you know he is more than good, if that's possible? He has pity for people who have fallen for the lie. He cares for the victims, the broken ones, who have spent all their lives looking for love, fulfillment, security, anywhere and everywhere, and are tired and miserable and dissatisfied. And this good God says, even though you've lost what you had, you can come home. I will heal you, restore you, cleanse you, forgive you. I'll replace your stinging regret and salty tears with joy and singing. And the story of Ezra is, is the continuing story of God rescuing and saving and restoring and rebuilding his broken people for what? Worship. He's bringing them home. Is, doesn't that make the whole story dramatic and poignant and powerful? I think these people have learned the hard way. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son that Jesus told? You don't know what you've got till it's gone. He thought his dad was an ogre. Give me my share of the inheritance now. I want it now, not when you're dead. In fact, I wish you were dead. Give it to me now. And what does he do? He goes off and it diminishes him. He doesn't just lose the sense of his father's glory, but he becomes miserable. Waste it all. And at the point where he had nothing and had lost everything, he gets up and he goes home and what does he find? The generous warmth of his father's arms welcoming him. His father throws a party. What a, what a picture of the forgiving, gracious love of God. Don't let anyone ever tell you that God is a killjoy. You, you, he, he loves you. Why did God rescue them then? He's restoring them to worship. And they now want to get it right. They want their priorities to be so much more true than they were before. I want to ask you then, this morning, do you need to build your altar? Are you living in the car park when you could be in paradise? Are you estranged from the God who made you to love him and you've lived the whole of life for you rather than for him? Do you need, like these people, to come home from exile and build an altar in your life so that you can worship God? Or are you seeking your security, identity, importance, joy, fulfilment, in all sorts of other things. And in the words of C.S. Lewis, you're being far too easily pleased. And you need to be restored 
to look up into your father's face and say, wow, you are amazing. Well, we need to get into Asbury, don't we? That was just the introduction. I want to say some things to you about worship. And um, we'll try and be quick. I've got eight things to say. Some of them will be quick. Some of them we might dwell on a little bit longer. And then we'll have to leave it there. And Rich is going to pick up with where we finish off next week. First of all, so if, you, if you've got your Bible open, it'd be great if you could stick with me here. Ezra chapter 3. First of all, number one, worship unites rather than divides. You'll notice with me that in verse 1, it says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. One man. Isn't that incredible? Worship united them as one. Listen, when your eyes are on God, you will go, wow. When your eyes are on one another, you'll go, ow. Why? Because we hurt one another. He hurt me. She offended me. Upset. When your eyes are on one another, you will go, ow. But when all of our eyes are on God, we'll go, wow. You remember that? There's a corporate dimension to worship. God is building a community of worship who together, as one, will lift their hearts to him with joy and gladness. We'll have to be quick. Number two, worship is always a response to what God has said and done. Twice, the writer says, in accordance with what is written, verse 2, just toward the end of verse 2, they built the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Verse 4, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated. Worship is always a response to what God does for us. There's some evidence that sacrifices were still being made in Jerusalem on the ruins during the exile, but God wasn't there. It wasn't his doing. And now God calls them back, and what's the first thing they do? What is the first thing they do? Well, we're going to worship God. We, let's have a carnival. They could have decided any manner of things, couldn't they? Do you know what they did? They went back to the book. What does God tell us? How are we to approach him? What offerings should we bring? What does he prescribe? This isn't DIY religion that they're making up as they're going along. Their worship is a response. This is a vibrant connection between them and God. God says, Come. And they're not barging into God's presence, in, but responding to his gracious invitation to come. So it's interesting that, isn't it? That it was all according to what was written. And that's what worship should be. We're not to make it up as we go along, but we worship at God's invitation. Worship glories in forgiveness. It's interesting that they settled down for about three months 
And then Ezra, it says that when the seventh month came, they begin. That is very significant. The second month, the seventh month is very significant in the Jewish calendar. It's the month of Tishri. It corresponds to September, October time for us. The first day of Tishri is Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. On the tenth day of Tishri, the Jewish people would celebrate Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur, Yom means day, Kippur means cover or hard. One writer says it means the day that our sins were obliterated. What a great day, what a great day that is. Yom Kippur, the day our sins were obliterated. Now these people needed to hear that. They've just been spent the last 70 years in exile and they come back to worship the God who forgives all their sins. Now, I want to suggest to you there's only two ways to deal with sin apart from God's way, which we'll come to. You can either bring God down to your level or you can try and bring yourself up to God's level. They're the two ways you could choose. You could either say, well, I'll bring God down to my level. I hope that God is more loving than he is holy. And that in the end, sin won't really matter because he's like Santa Claus in the sky, isn't he? And he'll let me off. That's kind of bringing God down to our level. Some people who are very religious, they think, no, I'm going to climb up to God's level. I'm really super amazing, sincere. I'm a moral person. I hope that I know God's holy. And I hope that one day he'll be so impressed with my morality that he'll welcome me into his arms. Do you bring God down or do you try and climb up? Actually, neither of those extremes work. The amazing thing about Christianity is that it doesn't bring God down or pull us up. What happens is this holy God takes our sin and he deals with it once and for all by making what is known as an atonement. We sang about it in one of our songs. The idea of atonement is to make things right. I heard the story of a guy who kicked a ball through his headmaster's window, smashed the window. He could go to headmaster and say, I'm really sorry, but I wouldn't fix the window, would it? For the window to be put right, someone would have to pay for a new one. The way God puts sin right is by providing a substitute who can take the sin and take it away. On the day of atonement, God told them to get two goats and the priest would come. All the people would be there and he would put his hand on the goat's head and he would confess all the sins of the people. And then they would kill one goat and the other would be taken outside the camp miles and miles and miles right over the horizon and then they would let it go that was when they were in the desert when they came to Jerusalem there was a tradition that they would take it to the edge of a cliff outside Jerusalem and push it off the whole point of this ceremony was that the goat wasn't coming back with the sins on it and neither were their sins what was God teaching them that their sins are not brushed under the carpet You can't bring God down. You can't climb up to him. What you need is for someone to take the sins away. And what a great picture it is of Jesus Christ coming into the world. 
to save sinners. He died to bear our sins. I mean, that is love, isn't it? He died for sins that were not his sins. He laid down his pure and spotless life to save people who don't deserve it. That is pure love, isn't it? No strings attached. Unselfish, compassionate. Satan tries to whisper that God hates you really. He's trying to pull the wool over your eyes. He's hard and demanding. You can't really trust him. And then Jesus comes and blows that idea completely out of the water, doesn't he? He is the man of love. He cares for you enough to pay your debts off at the cost of his own life. He bore our sins so that we can have a relationship with him. So the people returned to Jerusalem and they rebuilt the altar in the seventh month and straight away on the tenth day they remember the day of atonement the day God obliterated all sins I think one of the hardest things in life is when you feel lousy, guilty and you think I'm going to stay at home and not bother going to church today I feel miserable and I'm too much of a failure I feel like a hypocrite if you've forgotten that God forgives sins have you forgotten that you have a saviour have you forgotten that he loves you in spite of your failure and have you thought about this that to stay home is like throwing it back in his face and saying I don't believe it have you thought that He invites you to come and worship him as the God who forgives sins. Worship with glories in the forgiveness of sins. That's the one I was going to dwell on because that is the most important, isn't it? Worship increases confidence. They celebrated the festival of tabernacles on the 15th day. As we talked about that, what did they do? It's a weird one. They made little tents and they camped out for a week. Why? It was, it was a reminder of how God delivered them from Egypt and how they camped in tents in the desert. But it was also very much about food and harvest and thanksgiving. What they're doing here is they're remembering God's faithful care. Part of their worship is to recall the fact that God not only forgives their sins, but he's the God who cares about every detail of their lives. And as they worship this God... It increases their faith, nourishes their faith. Sometimes I think we get this wrong way around and we think, I'll worship God when I feel super confident. Actually, worship is partly a decision to lift your heart to God and remember his goodness and faithfulness. And as you worship him and reflect on his goodness, your faith is built up. Let me... uh, Give you another one. Worship displaces fear. The writer says in verse 3 that they, they built this altar despite their fear of the peoples around them. Now we've already touched on the fact that there were already people living here in these ruins. Some worship had carried on. It was all a bit mixed up. And then God's people suddenly turn up. They set up this altar to worship God properly. 
And you can imagine the friction, can't you? Who are you? We've been here for the last 70 years. If you think you're right, that must mean you think we're wrong. And if you think that, we want to fight. <laughs> Straight away, there's conflict, isn't there? Shouldn't do that. We'll see, hopefully next time, that they had opposition to this rebuilding all the way through. And yet, despite their fear, they build an altar to worship God. That is a decision. They choose worship despite fear. And I I think people who do this will find that the fear is displaced and dispelled. It's like for these people, they've learned to take their fears to God rather than let their fears paralyze them into doing nothing. And so the question for you and for me is, what do you do with your fears? There are many things that make us anxious. I'm old enough to have lived through a few crises. Felt the wind and rain on my face sometimes. and In some ways, I have a personality that that worries and fears things deeply. But do you know what the antidote to fear is? To deliberately turn my heart to worship. To build an altar right there and call upon God to recall his promises. To look up into God's face and say, Wow, God, you are great. This is hard, but you are great. Some of you are new Christians. You found things hard. You love God. You know sin's forgiven. You have that echo in your heart of knowing God and saying, wow. And then you come back down to, to earth with a bump because friends mock you, belittle. Some even feel a little aggrieved because they, they now seem to think that you think that you're better than them. But that's not how it is. Here's a lesson for us, isn't it? Worship is sometimes offered in fear and with much trembling despite their fear they built an altar that was their determination their priority I think one of the reasons for this is that worship also publicly affirms our faith faith is never dead and secret but always has to find confession doesn't it can you imagine if they'd gone there and sat for 20 years contemplating what should we do next? We don't know. They would have just drifted off, wouldn't they? Real faith needs decisive confessing. It needs proclaiming. They need to nail their colours to their mast. We're here in Jerusalem to worship God. And we're going to build an altar and do it right now. They had to show the people around them that they meant business. This was their identity. And we need to challenge one another, don't we, on this hesitation, dithering, and there's no place for that, is there, matter of faith. Follow the example here of these people who just got on with the main thing straight away. Let it be a confirmation of your faith to just build focus into your life and do the things, do the basic things that God calls us to do well. If you don't sort out priorities... Someone else or someone else will do it for you. And the opportunity will be gone before you got round to doing anything. 
first thing they did was build an altar. Let's be practical. When, when you're planning jobs, think about what it will do to your spiritual life. Build an altar into your life first. If you move to a new area, find a church where you can learn and grow and serve. Don't just look for the nicest house in the country. There is nowhere near a church. You students who are planning uni applications, if you thought about where you'll build an altar into your life, UCAS won't tell you that. But you will suffer spiritually if you don't nail your colours to the mast quickly and decisively. I'm going to build an altar and worship my God. Despite fear. Worship is for life and not just for Christmas. I mean, not just for Sundays. What does it say in verse 5? After all these festivals and feasts, it says in verse 5, after that, they presented the regular offerings. It's great to have parties and festivals and it's great to come to church on a Sunday. There were special times for sure, but actually the worship wasn't just like a slot machine. It was not like a Sunday thing that they forgot about on Monday. It was part of their lifestyle. I think this is the last one. Worship is not a ceremony primarily, but it is a relationship. One of the most amazing verses in the whole Bible is when Moses was commanded to make the first temple, the tabernacle in the desert. And God said to Moses and to the people, there I will meet with you and speak to you. Imagine God saying that to you. There I'll meet with you and speak to you. That's a great promise, isn't it? This whole deal here in Ezra is not just about being religious or going through the motions of ceremonies just for the sake of it. Their worship was grounded in their relationship with God. They knew him. They knew that he knew them. They loved him. They worshipped him. They praised him and thanked him. They were God's people. And he was their God. When the seventh month came, the people assembled as one. And they began to build an altar because they they were being restored to worship. Do you need to build an altar in your life at this point?